investing in India and taking the temperature of global bonds. I'm Kate Bealey and this is the Personal Finance Show. Today I'm joined in the studio by Dickie Hodges who runs Nomura's Global Dynamic Bond Fund to talk about the state of the global bond market and just where he's investing now. So Dickie, we know that bonds everywhere are looking expensive and it's very hard to find anything paying a reasonable income. How hard is it to be a bond fund manager right now? Well, I think that depends on what you're looking to try and achieve. You know, if you're a bond fund manager trying to achieve a level of income that's acceptable to the investors, uh, that meets their requirements, their minimum requirements, then I would still argue, uh, and if you're less risk adverse uh, and not so much uh, concerned over capital withdrawal or drawdown in performance, then there are still asset classes that can uh, give you the type of returns that you want from an income perspective. Uh, but if you're moving into an environment at a change of monetary policy, uh, which is still very questionable, I might add, then obviously it is very difficult uh, from the perspective that most people believe that when interest rates rise, bond funds will produce a negative return. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. It all depends on what type of bond fund that an investor is looking to uh, invest in. Uh, and if it has the flexibility to generate returns in what is perceived to be a bear market for fixed income or indeed a market in which interest rates are rising. Yeah, I mean, we're hearing a lot about um, yields coming down and down, prices going up and up, um, and also about very low levels of volatility, but at the same time, rising levels of global indebtedness. Um, How nervous do you feel right now about the potential for some kind of bond market correction? Well, I think it would be remiss of me to think that that possibility is not very imminent. Uh, There's a lot of events which still have to come ahead of us over the course of the next, well, the remainder of 2017 and certainly into the first half of 2018. That's created an awful lot of uncertainty. Uh, But typically, the way that investors are positioned at the moment, many of us or many investors have uh, an exceptionally large amount of cash, uninvested cash, which they're looking for any measure of future volatility uh, to deploy into investment strategies with a longer term horizon. So yes, I would say that at this point in time, we've got certain events which are coming towards us. Obviously, what, what events, for example? Well, we've got Trump. Uh, we've got the immediate uh, issue with regard to the US debt ceiling uh, and whether or not the US government is going to be shut down. I think that is anything uh, that is only uh, a, a point where we can actually look to invest and take an opportunity of any volatility into this. We've obviously got German elections which are coming up to the end of September, at the end of September, albeit it's very widely anticipated what the result will be from that. But more so into the beginning of 2018, and well, certainly between February and May of 2018, at some point we're going to have the Italian elections as well. And that'll be a point which creates a, a measure of volatility. But again, I think due to the uninvested cash that's in portfolio managers, uh, portfolios, and not just portfolio managers, but also the wealth management industry, we're looking for these opportunities of weakness in capital markets in in which to deploy cash to generate the returns. So it's this kind of waiting game. And if anything, you should look, and certainly I look from this, uh, although I might be nervous about where markets might be going in the uh, imminent future, I'm looking at all of these as opportunities in which to deploy investment strategies for the longer term. Okay. And I mean, let's talk a bit about your own fund. What kind of income level are you seeking in that? Um, and 
And do you, what kind of sacrifices are you having to make now to achieve both the level of safety that you want and, and the level of income? Well, first, it's important to understand what the fund, my fund is. Uh, the Nomura Global Dynamic Bond Fund uh, is a total return fund. So what we're looking to do is generate returns out of both income and capital. But when it comes to actually a lot of, when I talk to a lot of investors, they're very much interested, they're risk averse, which, which is an example of the amount of cash levels that they're holding within the portfolios. Uh, with a fund like mine, uh, you know, people don't want to see necessarily large capital drawdowns. Uh, they might accept this if they put this into a traditional bond fund that you know, has an interest rate sensitivity uh, and has a credit sensitivity and they accept that as part of a benchmark-driven fund that they're investing in. When you're looking at my fund, what I'm trying to do is to try and give a level of capital protection if there is an, uh, an event that causes drawdowns in, in performance, but at the same time meeting a level of income. I don't target a, a level of income on the portfolio. The distribution today is between 45 and 5%. Uh, but any given the level of interest rates and the level of you know, ten-year gilt yields hovering around one percent, any level that's four to five percent, I would suggest, is an elevated level. And as such, what I'm trying to do is deploying hedging strategies using derivatives, which overlay the portfolio to try and mitigate some of these. Now, I'm not suggesting that I can prevent the fund from having any capital losses in the event when if equity markets were to decline, credit spreads were to widen and government bond prices or corporate bond prices go lower. You know, I'm not suggesting that we can do this, but what I'm suggesting is we're going to be mitigating much of this at the same time deploying cash into cheaper investment opportunities uh, for future returns. So which areas are you hedging particularly? What, what are the biggest risks that you're trying to mitigate now? Well, uh, from an interest rate perspective, uh, we've got the immediate thing with the debt ceiling coming up, but also we've got the potential for, as was very widely discounted in capital markets already, further interest rate rises in the US. So what we're trying to do is I've got hedging strategies in place where I'm actually still shorting uh, you know, very short-term US government bonds uh, to generate positive returns in the event that yields should rise. Now, that sort of uh, measure would you know, generate a positive return to mitigate some drawdown in portfolios in the event that we have more than one interest rate rise for 2017. Much of the market is discounting now a rise in December of 2017, but very little rises further on. Uh, these strategies are in place to capture uh, an immediate change in expectations that actually we are going to have more than one or two interest rate rises in 2018. So they might not be designed to generate a positive return on the portfolio today, but certainly they're designed to capture some of that future uncertainty and maybe a change in expectations that the Federal Reserve are going to raise interest rates in the U.S., by a greater amount than is already discounted. Yeah, because I, I guess some people would find it surprising when uh, short-dated bonds are... Everybody's rushing into short-dated bonds now, aren't they? They're very popular. So if you're shorting those, does that mean you're, you're betting against the performance of those? Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, short-dated corporate bonds, this has been a theme. People have been concerned about interest rates going higher, uh, uh, and uh, it's certainly in the UK over the course of the last couple of years, uh, yet we've seen very little evidence that interest rates are going higher. So over the course of the last three to five years, you've seen a lot of investment into these short-duration bond funds. 
The reason is because the, pri uh, the price impact of interest rates going higher will be less so in short-dated bonds than it will be in longer-dated maturity bonds. Your bonds that are greater in maturity than 10 years that have a higher interest rate sensitivity. So it's almost they're investing because they're, they, they recognise that we are at a point where the cycle could be changing and interest rates could be rising. So they want to mitigate that effect of rising yields uh, and falling bond prices, but they still have to invest in a fixed income asset class. So, you know, so I think we're at this point where you've a lot of this. You know, you're just suggesting that I'm betting against this. I'm not betting against this. I'm just betting purely that interest rates, or not betting. I've got a great conviction that interest rates over the course of the next two years will go higher, and I can generate a positive return. Those who invest in a short duration fund will still generate a negative return, albeit much of that could be offset by the income that's coming through on their investments now. Okay, and I mean, I guess similarly, if if you do think rates are going higher, you are going long ten year treasuries, are you? Uh, well, again, this is certain times. I mean, I'm not one of these people that uh, that believes that you, know, you start at point A and it arrives at point B in a straight line. There is certainly going to be uncertainties upon the way, as it is that we've seen more recently 10-year U.S. government bond yields. We've seen 10-year German yields come back down again to a lower levels, the bottom of the range. As I said, gilt yields are hovering around 1% at the moment. 10-year uh, U.S. Treasury yields have come back low, so come back down from their elevated levels of two and three quarters uh, last year back down to 2.25 around these sort of levels. But I guess what I'm saying is that seems like quite significant duration risk if you do believe that rates will go higher. Uh, I don't believe so, actually, because you know, essentially you're, you're, you're investing based off of what a curve will do. So I believe that short-term interest rates will go higher than long-term interest rates. And actually, if I, if, I can, uh, if I can structure the position correctly, then I can still generate returns even if all interest rates or all bond yields go higher from this point. I'm just reflecting that I think shorter-term yields will go higher than longer-term yields. Okay, interesting. Let's talk a bit about the high-yield chunk of your portfolio. You hold the majority now in uh, B or double B-rated bonds, is that correct? Uh, I think so, yes. Uh, from that, well, I know so from a point of view, but these are very diver diversified across different currencies. But within that, they're very focused. Uh, one of the things which I would expect you to ask me is, do I still see value in high yield? Mm. Generically, I, don't, I see very little value. Because where are spreads now? They've come right oh, in. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, you, know, you look at the European High Yield Index, for instance, which includes triple Cs, and it's yielding something like two and a quarter percent. So you're really not getting compensated for that risk. Uh, but again, uh, you've got to think from an investor's perspective. If you're a German investor and you're faced with you know, short-term government bond yields, and let's face it, insur German insurance and pension funds have to invest a, a minimum, I believe, of around about 85% in fixed income asset classes. So your alternative, it's all about alternatives, and that's the problem that we face in this world of investing. It's all about alternatives. If your alternative is investing in negative bond yields, as opposed to investing in high yield at two and a quarter percent, and you still have an income demand, then you have very little choice other than to invest in this. From, a, uh, from a, my perspective, I see very little value in investing in much of the European high-yield market or indeed the UK or indeed the US. 
But where we have our investments, they're very focused, uh, where we believe that we can still generate a level of capital. Uh, and it's still giving us a level of income that's acceptable. So what kind of things? Give me some examples of... Well, I mean, there's um, you know, there's uh, many companies around the world which are still you know still offering the nine ten percent yields. Uh, again, obviously, a company that's uh, a debt that's yielding anywhere between seven and nine percent is a riskier. That involves a lot of in-depth and sort of deep dive analysis on the company to actually understand the dynamics of the cash flow and the future cash flows. So where we're investing some of these, uh, we've got a great uh, confidence in these. Now, it doesn't mean that if you have a weakness in the asset class, that these won't be affected in the short term. Uh, but certainly from longer term, we are seeing those great opportunities in some of these. Uh, and I've got a great level of conviction. And if anything, we're looking for weakness in generically in the capital markets to actually you know, increase some of the exposures. Uh, and much in the same way as where we're looking at different asset classes and different currencies as well, and not just high yield. I'm, I know I'm stepping around the mark with re, with regard to individual names, uh, but the point, the point of the matter is this fund is a dynamic fund. You know, Part of what we're trying to do is uh, actively manage both the underlying asset classes and tactically manage the volatility. So what might be a, a, a position that we hold in the portfolio, uh, which we have been for the last six months, once it reaches a position where we see very little opportunity for future capital appreciation and the level of income doesn't warrant us in investing anymore, then that position will be out of the portfolio. Okay. I mean, I mean uh, you are obviously very selective, as, as you've just said, in the, in the high yield positions that you take. People would argue that with low interest rates, QE, it's obviously been very cheap for companies to borrow. People often say that, that kind of lower quality companies have been kept afloat for longer than they might have done had we had higher rates, for example. Agreed. And if we do get a rate rise, we could get much higher defaults, which would impact on the high yield market. It, is that something that concerns you? But what you've got to ask yourself, are we going to experience that higher level of defaults in the near future? Well, I believe that QE should be coming to an end. I think QE has caused a number of problems and, uh, and it has done nothing with regard to increasing the level of inflation, which it was designed to do. And we can see this today from any measure of inflation that's priced into capital markets or measures of inflation that are coming out. Um, the fact is, you know, we are not going to see a significant uptick uh, uptick in the default probability over the course of the next two or three years, I would suggest. The reason is quantitative easing, as as you suggest, has uh, has pushed you know, asset yields lower. It's uh, you know it's uh, government bond yields are lower, credit spreads, which is the premium on corporate bonds demanded to invest in them, has shrunk significantly. And we've all moved further down the capital structure to buy higher yielding, deeper subordinated, riskier, arguably riskier asset classes. Um, the defaults are not going to happen because all of these companies over the course of the last two or three years, since ECB introduced quantitative easing back in 2013 and accelerated it into private assets in 2014, has meant that companies have funded future liabilities. They've refinanced at significantly lower levels. Uh, companies typically only default where either in a, an event of fraud or when they cannot service cap their debt outstanding or when they cannot refinance debt that's coming up to maturity. 
and the fact of the matter is nearly every single company has pushed their maturity profile further into the future. So the probability of a significant pickup in defaults, even in an environment where interest rates are rising, is much less so today than it was a year or two ago. Uh, and the mature, you can see this just from the maturity profile of benchmark indices. You know, the, you know, the maturity profile has, has got longer and longer and longer as they've pushed their debt profile further out. And if a company has more cash today than it did yesterday, the probability of defaulting tomorrow must be getting less. Okay. And, I mean, talking of defaults, we did have quite a few, didn't we, in the energy sector when we had that commodity route 2014-15 um, has that changed the nature of the high yield market, which we have thought of globally as full of uh, kind of energy stocks? Is it now more financials? What have you got to choose from? <clears throat> yes, the high yield market has more financial debt because more financial debt has been downgraded by the rating agencies into the high yield sector as a source of opportunity for both capital income uh, and liquidity, because it's a larger market than the traditional high yield corporate bond market. Many high-yield fund managers now have, as a, as a means of necessity, moved more into subordinated levels of financial debt. This is banks and insurance companies. So it has become a much more acceptable part of the universe for a high-yield manager to invest in financials. And therefore, as it becomes more acceptable, the demand for those asset classes comes through. Uh, and that allows investment banks uh, and insurance companies in turn to issue further subordinated financial debt, which is helping their capital ratios. So, you know, high yield is more financial investment than it ever has been, certainly more than it has been since 2013 and 2014. I mean, and, and you yourself have been buying more subordinated bank debt recently, haven't you? And I, I think some people would listen to that and think subordinated bank debt being uh, where you are lower down the priority list for getting paid back in the event of a crash, they might hear that and think that sounds like quite a high-risk investment. Uh, I suppose that uh, from some people's perspective that might, but it all depends on what you're, whether you're expecting. Uh, the banks are in a significantly different position than they were five years ago. Uh, you've certainly a lot of, uh, due to central bank intervention uh, and due to regulation, a lot of banks uh, you know, have been... Uh, removing themselves, stepping away, selling their bad bank loan books, uh, and so their capital position has improved. That is not to say that they're not susceptible to significant amounts of volatility. Uh, as a source of income for the fund and potential capital, yes, we've invested further in subordinated financials. But you've got to remember this is a, the fund I manage is dynamic in nature as well as it is in name. We employ a lot of hedging strategies. You know, these are using simple option strategies to try and mitigate some of that volatility that we see. And it sounds very complicated, but this is as very simple as buying a put. You know, you buy a put, you pay a premium. If markets fall, that put will generate a positive return as it moves more in the money and markets start you know, giving negative returns. So we might be investing in subordinated financial. I would argue we have don't have as much as many others. Uh, and traditionally, if you looked at uh, investment-grade corporate portfolios, the level of uh, total level of financial debt within a, a, a more traditional fixed-income portfolio or benchmark has always had a significant portion of that in financial debt. 
But we we are looking to hedge where we see future points of volatility to protect the investments that we have. One of the great uh, you know, one of the great Howard Marks, the billionaire U.S. investor, says uh, said uh, in one of his books the most important thing. He talks about why you invest. Uh, if you like an asset at a hundred and that asset falls to ninety, well, if you bought it at a hundred, you must like it at ninety. If that asset then falls to eighty, well, if you liked it at a hundred and you really liked it at 90, you must really like it at 80 cents. In reality, from a fund managed perspective, if you buy an asset at 100 and it falls to 90, you start worrying about it. And then you maybe look to exit if it bounces back up to 95. At 80 cents, you become almost either a panic or forced seller. Well, with me employing hedging strategies to, you know, to, you know, to mitigate some of the downside for systematic or systemic market risk, it gives me the ability to invest at 100, invest again at 90, and invest again at 80, where many people don't have that opportunity because they don't have those abilities to hedge that asset class. Okay. Um, I, want, I want to move to another area of fixed income that you're investing in now and talk briefly about European fixed income because you have been buying a lot of Portuguese bonds, and I wonder why. Well, we've been doing this over the course of the last six or seven months and Portugal has been one of the best performing bond markets that you've seen and this is all wrapped up with uh, events uh, from Brexit uh, and also certainly from Macron. It is my view that ultimately the only way that the European Union and the Euro can survive is to have full fiscal union Uh, and that ultimately uh, this doesn't mean that full fiscal union is going to start over the course of the next 12 months, but certainly I think this move to full fiscal union will accelerate in the next decade and to the beginning of the next decade. So what I'm trying to look at is to preempt where people will be looking to invest because if you've got 100 units of return, the first 50 units of return out of any strategy are generated out of an instantaneous change in market expectations. I believe that we will start uh, expecting there to be a move towards full fiscal union. Uh, you know, we don't have an optimal currency area at the moment because we have a single currency, but we have individual countries and sovereigns financing their budget deficits. I think we will have to move to that stage if the euro is going to survive. Now, what that means is looking at you know, periphery debt that has uh, that obviously produced significant negative returns historically. Uh, Portugal yielding around 3% versus Germany yielding at a quarter of a percent. I'm not suggesting that Portuguese yields, 10-year yields, will go down to a quarter percent, but I'm suggesting they will meet in the middle at some stage in the future. But, uh, you know, you need once momentum starts coming through these, you'll be surprised at how many people will start talking about this, and then it almost, uh, it almost uh, creates a virtuous circle. Now, in Portugal, I'm not just investing in Portuguese euro-denominated government debt. I'm, in, I'm invested in Portuguese US dollar-denominated debt, and you've seen a significant spread compression, meaning that these have significantly outperformed US treasuries by a, a, by a large margin over the course of the last six months since we started investing. You've seen Europe, uh, Portuguese European yields fall 50, 60 basis points in the period that we started investing where you've seen virtually no move in German government bond yields, uh, and also through uh, a derivative called a credit default swap, where essentially you, know, you can use this as it's an instrument that we use to either buy or sell insurance to, pre- to protect ourselves or to capitalise from improvements in the dynamics of a company or a sovereign. 
So what we did was we essentially sold protection in Portuguese government debt, which means I'm being paid a premium to take the risk of Portugal's credit improvement. Mm. And if the credit improvement, if, if the credit improves, their balance sheets improve, growth improves, uh, the, domestic, the, the dynamics of Portugal as a country improve, then the premium that's demanded to hedge against Portugal defaulting must get less. And that's indeed what's happened. So it's not just buying uh, euro-denominated Portuguese government debt. We're doing, we're investing in Portugal where we see uh, real dynamics and where we see the opportunities, and not just in the single European currency. Okay, and and one other country where you have been investing is in, well, Indian masala bonds. Yes, which are fairly new, are they? Well, they're not necessarily new, but certainly in a world where you're looking for alternative forms of generating both income and capital outside of uh, asset classes that have already give, given significant returns, then I think these, you have to look where some of these opportunities lie. And I mean, uh, these are yielding 7%. So pretty... uh, exactly. These are two or three year bonds. But look at the dynamics of, uh, uh, of India. I mean, you know, you've got you know, growth is running at 7 to 7.5%. Inflation is running at a, uh, a level that's more than acceptable with regard to where you look at other other economies. Interest rates have just been cut more recently. The probability is that interest rates might be cut again by another quarter of 1%, which will be supportive for the bonds. But then if you're looking from a currency perspective, uh, the Indian rupee has been very stable. I mean, obviously, during Feb- January and February 2016, much like many emerging currencies, uh, they it underperformed. But the fact of the matter is I can still hedge the currency risk at times, which will cost me and detract from the 7% income or yield that I'm achieving on these bonds. But it doesn't necessarily, but that's very liquid. So I, I can uh, I can be very reactive uh, and preemptive in hedging currency risk. Mm-hmm. But what's my, op- what's my alternative? You know, my alternative is to invest in a U.S. high yield market that maybe that's yielding now circa five and a half percent, with a duration of four, five, six. And I'm investing in Indian uh, masala bonds, which are tax efficient. They settle within Euroclear and they settle uh, in U.S. dollars, uh, and all cash flows are are done within the U.S. dollar. So essentially, these are these are very very stable. They've given significant. They've been given some very good returns, and what's more importantly, is there's a significant amount of demand for these bonds, not there, there just is, masala. But although um, it should be said that part of part of the expansion in in that market in uh, or the expansion of these bonds is is due, isn't it, to the fact that so many big Indian banks have had to stop lending just due to the levels of bad loans and the level of company defaults on their books. So does that go to show that actually Indian bonds are, are very high risk? Uh, no, I disagree with that completely. I mean, you're looking at historically what's been going on within India. India are going through significant reforms, both politically, very politically stable, uh, but also significant tax reforms. Now, those tax reforms might have a near-term drag on economic performance, but you're talking about a complete change in the dynamics of India from where it was looking back from the course of the last five years. And I think that is recognised, and we have seen significant inflows into both Indian bond market and the Indian equity market over the course of the last 12 to 24 months. Uh, and I, I, from my perspective, I think that's also going to be ongoing. And the next place we're going to be looking at is Indonesia as a place with a very similar dynamics, very, very stable currency, 
uh, and bonds that are yielding between. And these are AAA bonds. You can you can buy supranational AAA rated bonds uh, from the largest supranational agencies in, uh, on the globe, and these are still yielding between seven and eight percent. So, how much of your portfolio is in emerging market debt now? Uh, well, again, it's uh, it's not just local currency emerging market, but it's also hard currency. For my uh, on the portfolio, when we when the fund when it first started, we put a, a maximum of thirty percent, which we can invest in in uh, emerging markets, and that encompasses both hard currency, U.S. dollar and euro currency, as well as local currencies. So at the moment, we've probably got, including the Indian masala, a, a circa around about twenty twenty one percent. Uh, but again, it's, a lot, it's looking as opportunities. You know, it's all it's all on a relative basis. As we see, you know, much of the performance going out of some emerging markets that we've actually invested in, we will look to rotate that into some where we still perceive there is both a level of capital and a level of income that way outshines that. Uh, and and the probability of defaults is also significantly less across the globe. You know. Okay. Um, finally. We think of the main risks of bonds as uh, credit risks, so the risk of not getting your money back, um, duration risk, so uh, the risk of interest rates affecting the price, and I guess inflation risk, so inflation eating into the yield you're getting. Of those three things, what would you say is the biggest risk you're taking on with your portfolio? Uh, from that from that perspective, it's still uh, uh, credit is a, is probably the still largest one. Uh, if I'm looking at the underlying portfolio, but again, as I suggested earlier, I, I, at times we have significant hedges in place, and I only look back to other points in time. You know, December 2015. I mean, we'd accumulated 30, 40 percent was of the portfolio was hedged. As I was telling everyone at the end of 2015, that you would see a significant drawdown in equity markets between the tune of 15 to 20 percent. So, as the market started falling in that period, the hedges were generating a positive return, and it allowed us to invest. I had no emerging or oil or gas, uh, and very little, if not any, emerging exposure from the start of the portfolio on the 30th of January 15, right up until the point where equity markets started collapsing. The hedges allowed me to invest. Okay. So yes, it's credit risk, but I very much we tactically manage that credit risk through hedging opportunities to mitigate where at points we see an elevated level of risk coming through. Okay, and then very finally, is there an area would you say that you feel you are the most contrarian on, as in an area where you feel uh, your fellow managers might be buying and you think you just want to avoid altogether? Uh, well, investment grade. Uh, I see very little reason for invest, uh, investing in, you know, in more of the mainstream investment grade. I have no interest rate sensitivity to the UK. That doesn't mean that I think UK interest rates are going higher or UK government bond yields are going higher. It's just that I believe I can generate returns elsewhere that are going to exceed those op- uh, available from interest rates. So UK have virtually no duration. Uh, and then in the US, uh, again, I'm very short. I still believe that we are going to, and it's not necessarily due to an increased level of inflation or growth in the US, but I think the Federal Reserve have to move further away from this low interest rate policy just because at some point over the course of the next three years, they are going to be at a point where they're going to need to cut interest rates again. 
but they have to move interest rates higher. So from that perspective, uh, I'm probably shorting uh, interest rates in the US much more aggressively than many of my many of the peers. Okay, thanks. Well, that's all we've got time for, I think. So uh, thanks very much, Dickie. Yeah, that's my pleasure. Now, it's been called the jewel in the emerging market crown. It's got a rapidly expanding working age population, rising GDP, exciting new technologies, and it's fast becoming a digital economy. We're talking about India, and this week we've been having a look at the ways you can invest and whether or not you should. So I'm joined now by personal finance editor Leonora Walters. So, Leonora, India has been a popular market among investors for some time. Why does it have such good potential? Well, like you said before, um, there are a number of um, factors, including demographics. It has a young population and a young population that's increasingly going to work and increasingly getting better off. Um, So more so-called middle class. And obviously, when you get that effect, then you get more spending, in particular consumer spending, which feeds through to companies and goods and services and even things like financial services, which obviously translates through to GDP and um, so far GDP numbers have certainly been reflecting that. Um, In 2013 India's GDP, gross domestic product, to give it its full name, was 5.5%. In um, 2016, that grew to 8%. So quite a strong trend there. Um, I think other things are helping the domestic growth as well. I mean, for example... A reason why we can all go shopping and spending and boosting GDP is because we've got easy access to financial services. Now, that's not a characteristic in developed markets, but it's becoming much easier to open bank accounts in India, which means that people have more money, um, spend more and probably even more GDP growth. Oh, interesting. And so what about the companies in this market? Are they growing too? Are these trends good for them? They are indeed. And I mean, that's a very good point because quite often it has been a case in emerging markets that GDP growth has been good, but it's not necessarily been reflected in share prices. But um, this seems to be coming through. Um, for example, um, we've got some statistics here from um, Citigroup and it estimates that Indian mid-caps are expected to deliver earnings growth of 56% in 2017. Um, and the Indian stock market has been doing well. So I think those earnings and those share price rises are coming through off the back of um, you know, a, a good uh, e- uh, economic picture. Yeah, so all good things. But people have been talking about these factors for a little while, haven't they? And, and kind of talking up India, I guess, as an investment case. Does that mean that valuations have really come up? Is it more expensive than it was? Yes. Now, that is a downside, one of many downsides, which we'll shortly discuss. Um, valuations are high. Um, MSCI India index has been trading on a price earnings or PE ratio of 22.4 times. Um, now, to put that into perspective, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index is on one of just 15.45 times. Um, MSCI BRIC, that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, is on 15.55. So it's kind of obvious which of the BRICs is expensive. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, investing in any emerging market is undoubtedly risky, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a very high-risk business, and investors really need to consider that before they put their money in that area. If you're going to do it, you need a long-term investment horizon because there will be markets up and down um, and be prepared to lose some of that money. Um, why, why, why have you got to be prepared for that? Well, I mean, 
you know, across emerging markets, there are a few common themes. Um, poor corporate governance. Um, uh, there's also the risk that um, something Dickie mentioned earlier, while foreign direct um, investment can rush in, it can also rush out very fast, which can make markets very volatile. Uh, now, another problem that India has in common with some other emerging markets is a high level of bad loans. And um, it is democratic, but uh, maybe, you know, it's not necessarily as stable or as accountable as here. Uh, the government's, you know, it's put through some reforms, but, um, you know, there's no guarantee it can do more reforms. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of questions um, sort of hanging over it. OK, and if you did want to take the risk, though, and, and you did want to invest in India-specific fund, um, what, what kind of thing could you invest in? Well, there are uh, a few specific India funds. There's a few specific India ETFs as well. Um, I think what investors need to bear in mind is these are very high risk because they're concentrated on one country and one emerging markets country. Um, I think something else they might want to bear in mind is when deciding between the, let's say, the passive ETF fund or an active fund is that emerging markets is an area where active managers can add value. Um, it's also expensive. Active managers don't just add value. They can pick out value shares. So there could be an argument for being active in India, certainly at the moment. Now, we were just saying that Indian valuations are really expensive. So if you do opt for an India fund, it probably might make sense to go for one whose managers are careful about not going for overvalued shares. Because it, it's useful to remember that while an overall market can have a high PE ratio, a high valuation, that's just an average. There will always be well-valued shares within that, hidden away, less researched ones, and you need managers to dig those out. Um, now, a fund that might be a good option for doing that is the JP Morgan Indian Investment Trust. Um, it's um, large and liquid. It's nearly 800 million in assets under management. Um, I think its managers are very experienced, very diligent. So they'll certainly look out for, you know, those active opportunities and avoid things that aren't so good. Um, and it's got a nice allocation to financials 40% and the reason why it's good to have an allocation to financials in a, a market let's say where consumers are driving GDP growth is because um, it's basically a play in the consumer you know if, if people are spending more uh, getting more money financial services will grow bank accounts will open so it's uh, you know it's definitely good to have a fund in an emerging market with exposure to financials um, and with exposure to things like consumer discretionary in which it has 18% of its assets. Okay. Um, do you have to invest in an India-specific fund to get a lot of India exposure? Um, well, if you want a, a lot of India exposure, yes. But I think, as I said before, it's not suitable for most investors. And I, I, don't, I don't exaggerate. Let's be honest, most people listening to this probably shouldn't invest in an India fund. You should only invest in an India fund if you've got an investment horizon of five for every 10, 15, 20 years, very high risk appetite and a massive portfolio, let's say hundreds of thousands of pounds and out of your whatever, 500,000 pound portfolio, maybe you might put 1% of it in an India fund. So what about the rest of us? Well, yeah, there's good ways to do it. And uh, uh, the good ways to get exposure to India are via broad, global emerging markets funds 
abroad, Asia funds, which have a good allocation to India, um, and what makes them better, the, the risk is spread more, so it'll be less volatile, and things don't go well in India, they've got other things to rely on. Now, um, we have set out several options of broad global emerging markets funds and broad Asia funds in this week's big theme on India, in, in today's magazine. One I particularly like that we've singled out is Stuart Investors Asia Pacific Leaders Fund. Um, this has got very high exposure to India, considering it's a broad uh, fund. It's got 30% of its assets um, alongside some other countries. So, you know, it's not totally reliant. Um, it's run by very experienced manager called David Gate. Um, he's been running a number of funds focused on Asia for several years, largely with a very good track record. So he's very experienced, very competent, has made some very good returns. Um, what's particularly good about Stuart Investors Asia Pacific Leaders is it's a really quite a defensive fund. So if you don't have a massive high risk appetite for a single country India fund and you want something a bit more defensive, this is a really good option. He invests generally in quite good quality companies, um, ones that, you know, sustainable advantages, ones he's vetted carefully, um, and it, it, it tends to be less volatile. Perhaps the downside to this fund is, like at the moment, it's, it, its numbers don't look as good as some of its peers. It's lagged them. But when things turn nasty, this fund will hold up. Okay, great. Well, we've got um, a big list of a whole range of Indian funds, Indian trusts, um, and emerging market and Asia funds in the magazine. So take a look at that. But that's all we've got time for today. So thanks very much to Leonora and Dickie. Have a great weekend and join us back here next week. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.